A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science, with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. And I said, I want to win the league, but I want to win it better. You can understand that, can't you? Yes. Good luck. So he's almost like having a second captain in the team. Second captain, first captain, whatever. Okay, I'll start this show by apologising to everyone for the fact that this isn't Richie Sadlier you're hearing. Bosses, mm. bo- is it the boss or boss? Uh, boss. Boss's first hosting job is still the top show on iTunes four days on, and if all the tweets are anything to go by, you lot seem to love having him in charge. Now, on top of everything else, he's got brilliant presenter to add to all the other stuff. Psychotherapist, handsome analyst, former beanpole striker. What an arsehole. Yeah, he's a real piece of shit, Mark. He's he he's still addicted to nicotine though, so that's one thing we have over. <laughs> Not you, yeah. Ken. Obviously, yeah. Obviously, you're still knee deep in the your addiction. But uh, me and Mark, free and clean. Thanks for all your messages. As always, David contacted us to say listening to Richie's excellent psychotherapy session with Luke Fitzgerald. Any chance of a regular slot in the show where Richie sits down with emotionally vulnerable sports personalities and exposes their psychological frailties for us all to enjoy? Mm. I mean, if uh, any sports people <laughs> out there listening, if you want to. Free psychotherapy session with uh, Richie Sadler. I think there's every chance of that, David. We'll try and dig someone out who's less together for Thursday's show than Lucas Gerald was. Uh, Richie <laughs> will be back in the hot seat then. Owen McDevitt, remember him? Yeah. He's yeah. going gonna to return next Monday. He's been away for three weeks now, so that should be just enough time to tour all the football stadiums in whatever country he's in. I know. I know. I was talking about him <laughs> going after the Big Five in the, the football show, Mark, as well. I mean, I, I presume he's gotten to... I, I, wasn't Rory McIlroy playing in a golf tournament in South Africa? He was last week. Came second. There's got. There's every chance he was there, wearing a Dublin jersey. I should have watched the entire <laughs> tournament. I'm sure. He, I'm sure he would have showed up somewhere. Uh, can everyone remember one year ago in the Champions Cup? Leinster finished bottom of their pool, 14 points behind the second place team. I didn't realize they were that bad until I looked back at it today. Yeah. Six points in total in the pool. Yeah. Uh, like de- like never in it. Like never even had a sniff of qualifying at any stage. <laughs> Uh, yeah, it's crazy. Munster, crazy not much better. They finished third, eight adrift to Leicester. Everyone was annoyed by the Sky-BT rights divide. And now we're still annoyed by the Sky and BT rights divide, but we seem to be back in love with European rugby. We're getting full houses, dramatic tries, and Leinster and Munster as the top two seeds in the competition. Shane Horgan and Jerry Thorny will join us very shortly to talk about a brilliant weekend of rugby and Connick's chances of reaching the quarterfinals. And we're also going to tell the incredible story of Katie Cook, who's a 19-year-old student and runner from Dublin. Um, despite having severe epilepsy, Katie finished her second Dublin marathon last October and has had a total of and had a total of eight seizures along the way. Um, we were actually due to speak to Katie the morning after the marathon, but unfortunately she had to be taken to hospital after the race. But she's dropping into us today along with her running partner, Dr. Colin Doherty, who's a neurologist from St. James's Hospital. So stay tuned for what I think is an inspirational story for anyone really, but particularly for young people who are suffering from any kind of debilitating illness. Um, will we grab a quick email? 
think so. Please. This comes in from Colin O'Byrne. Uh, it came in at 6am, by the way. Um, I like that you've printed out the email as well. It's a very on Real old school. school. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Uh, this came in at 6am. <laughs> and the subject is lovely fags be gone. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like he's doing well. All right, go on. Yeah, yeah. yeah, he's in a good place. Uh, dear the lads, presently listening to the excellent world premiere of Richie uh, in the hot seat as he does his best to usurp the lovable Owen McDevitt. All right, we get enough. We get yeah. enough about Richie. Mm. Uh, my reason for always fucking Richie. Yeah, yeah, okay, never fine. ended about yeah. us. Uh, yeah. My reason for writing this is that I wanted to offer some words of support to Ken and Richie vis-a-vis their attempts to knock the fags in the head. In keeping with their parlance, I am on day ten of what I hope will be a life sans smokes. Don't worry, there's no more French. <laughs> That's all there is. Uh, Ken seems to be struggling a little, a fog of tetchiness clouding his more usually obvious amity towards his fellow planet inhabitors. Hang in there, Ken. Mm-hmm. For what it's worth, after smoking for one score in two years, my body has decided to reward my efforts by inviting some hardcore insomnia around for the last week. This email is not being written by an eager early riser, but rather by someone who threw in the towel after six and odd hours of trying to keep calm in the face of a sleep that would never come. The feral cats in the back garden were happy for the cold chicken they got from the fridge, as said abattoir scrapings were still warmer than anything out there. And I'm happy to have this podcast to listen to as I try to convince myself that I have in fact had a good sleep and all is well and normal on this day, whatever day it turns out to be. Ken, if you're also up, Dunny Carney is only a short hop up the road from Fairview, so could you try out your new lungs and drop me some sleeping tablets? Yes, the words are failing now, so I'll leave it there. Take it easy. <laughs> was that this morning? No, no, that was that was the morning after the show. Oh, so that was Friday, Friday morning. Yeah. I don't understand though. Was he saying that he went outside to smoke? No, I think he because he couldn't sleep, and he said, I, "I don't care. I'm throwing in the towel. I'm I'm gonna just start smoking again." Was that was that what what's no. going on? No, no, he threw in the towel uh, of trying of attempting to sleep. Yeah, okay, not by smoking. Yeah, I don't know. I don't, I don't have that problem actually. The uh, sleeplessness. It's the problem is is more the the fourteen hours when you're not asleep, when you're not asleep. The they're, they're the ones behavior. that are really killing you. Yeah. How, how are the mood swings? Yeah, I don't want to bring it up on no. on you know on live in the podcast here, but he did snap at me a little bit today, Murph, when I tried to get to What what happened? Pretty pretty angry. What happened, Mark? No, it's okay. I'm not gonna, just that's just blown it. It seems, joke. Mark. I mean, I'll, it's forgotten I'll, about. Listen, the listeners obviously love a little bit of uh, psychoanalysis on this podcast. So, Mark, come on, just just. Throw your feet up there and just tell me what happened. How, did, <laughs> did it give you a no feeling? No, he, uh, basically, I, I just came in to take my place in the studio and Ken snapped at me to say that he had another three effing questions still that he had to <laughs> ask <laughs> and that he had the studio till a certain time of the day. Mm. But it's okay. It's I think, fine. I think Ken said, I need them. I need these three minutes. <laughs> yeah, I did need those three minutes or we wouldn't have got to talk to John Brown about Diego Costa. <laughs> True, yeah. true. So, I mean, hopefully you two can work this through. Maybe I'll leave the psychoanalysis for the moment. Maybe off air, we can have a group therapy session Simon can chair and uh, we yep. can get to the nub of some issues. I've right. actually got to get home. Fair enough. Okay, time to get to this. Zebo looking for a bit of Zebo magic on the outside. His Keith Earls. Back it goes. Simon, what a great European rugby moment. That's a proper big-time match-winning try complete with Barbarian's dive. Loved it. The good times are back. It's not a proper one of those tries unless the camera's waiting and sees the score trier face on. It was brilliant and the perfect dive. And to pull out your most skillful moment, 
of the game at that crucial point when you're behind in the one chance you have up their end kind of summed up everything about Munster and that they weren't perfect but they did the right things at the right time Okay Jerry and Shane are with us lads how are you? Good thanks and you? Uh, Great thank great, you Great thanks um, Last week we asked where Leinster and Munster in contention for this year's European Cup Jerry this week the question is clearly who will win in the dream Leinster Munster <laughs> final uh, a tight late two point victory and a 54 point beating uh, which was more impressive for you? Ooh, good question. I suppose you'd have to go with Leinster, just even though Montpellier um, hailed a taxi after the fourth try, maybe even sooner. But, you know, I even thought when the match was really on that some of Leinster's play was absolutely superb. Way more dynamic than Munster. I think their attacking game is a different remit to Munster's. But then again, with Munster, the whole always adds up to more than the sum of the individual parts. And even when they're not playing particularly well with any outstanding performances, they're like a dog with a bone. They just dig in, uh, great grit, um, hang in there and seize their moment. And this time close it out like they didn't do in Welford Road. They could easily be sitting in six wins from six, having been outsiders in this pool at the start. So I think you have to say both are now contenders, not least as they're both likely to get home quarterfinals if they win again this weekend. Um... There's more to Leinster's game, you'd have to say. I thought some of their running games and their angles of running, their attacking play has come on immeasurably to where it was a year ago. Um, with Sexton there as well, I thought his range of passing, the way he takes the game line, picks out the right options, just makes them you know, 20, 30, 40% better as an attacking unit. And you've got fresh, um, young talents like Adam Byrne and Rory Lockton on the wings. You've got Henshaw and Ringrose going so well in midfield. And of course, Naseba, just the remarkable ageless Easton Naseba gets better and better and better and probably came up with the moment of the weekend with that chip and gather and pass inside to Jack Conan. So unbalanced, possibly more with Leinster, but... In its way, I think Munster will get as much satisfaction at that away win against Glasgow as they did the home one. Would you go along with that, Shane? You seem pretty impressed by Leinster and co-commentary. Yeah, I was really impressed by them, but there's something intangible going on with Munster at the moment that um, we have almost seen before and it seems quite familiar. There's a feeling and momentum about the way they play that uh, is very difficult to come up against and even more difficult to de- to defeat. Um, and they're defensive structure at the moment there seems so comfortable in it um, it really gives them a, a sound footing for anything else they want to do in the game they certainly have the um, potential for the greatest improvements as well um, Razi Erasmus said they're probably operating technically uh, or tactically at about 50-60% uh, um, and I think in elements of the game certainly their uh, exit pattern wasn't great I think they didn't go wide enough on, on the occasions that they could have that presented themselves. And I think they were over-reliant a little bit on the one-out runner. I think they have opportunity to, to move that ball quickly, as we've seen before, across the, the one-out runner and open up space out wide. Um, they didn't take those, but yet they still came away with a, a win. And I think uh, if you have a good defense or a very good defense, it takes an exceptional uh, offense or attack to break it down and there's not too many exceptional offenses um, in this competition left that said uh, Leinster looked as if they had won at the weekend it was it was um, a really impressive display I agree with um, Jerry there the, uh, the variety in Sexton's passing game was remarkable and um, the entire back line is now challenging their skills and the, actually the forwards the connection between the forwards and the backs um, they're challenging their skill, taking the ball forward, holding a man and then delivering the pass, which um, is very often in front. They seem to have a mentality of, a, of a getting an offload game going as well. You know, all their basics uh, were very strong. 
Um, it was a really complete uh, performance from Leinster and the work rate was, was very strong as well. So I think Munster have capacity to uh, perform at a much higher standard than they have. Alri- uh, that they have. Um, uh, Leinster seems to be hitting their, uh, their top, top draw already. Now, that said, they're playing against a um, Montpellier team who were not at the races and it was quite embarrassing really. Jerry, the Munster performance overall, if you look at how Glasgow played, mm-hmm. um, really good for almost the entire 80 minutes, but one notable theme was the targeting of Conor Murray. And it struck me as I was watching it thinking, how come teams haven't done this more before? It's such an obvious thing to do is to go after their most influential player. Yeah, um, try and rattle him, try and rough him up a bit, get him on the deck so he can't get to the next breakdown because... I would say 95% of their um, recycling game comes through Murray at the base. He gets to nearly every ruck. We just take it for granted. But he's, I was watching him off the ball and he, his lines of running to get to the breakdown are so clever now. And he's, He is the fulcrum around which their game is based. He does more kicking almost than Blayendal. So yeah, I think the All Blacks provided a template at the Viva Stadium. They tried to rough him up as well. And it was quite blatant from very early on, right up to after the full-time whistle, when he hoofed the ball rather angrily into the stands and then got another shove for his troubles, that they really went after him. And um, you would imagine now that other teams will look at this, Simon, and they'll start to emulate this, so he's going to expect more of it. It's yeah. a compliment Jerry, of sorts. Just that's, that's not good enough, actually, as well. I think these are the players that uh, have to be protected. And we saw the same with um, Sexton. And, you know, there's no doubt that he was having such an influence on the game at that point. He's well known. That was the hit by uh, Stain was was late and high and obvious. Mm -hmm. And Murray was targeted and not just, you know, in in a natural physical way. I think it was it was uh, some of the stuff that we was being done was illegal mm-hmm. and these two guys are complete players they have a big influence on both the teams but more so they're marquee players for the sport and we can't afford these guys getting you know big knee injuries getting blown out by the sort of tackling that we saw late on murray or the type of head high collisions that we've seen on sexton um i think there has to be one eye to to you know players being targeted like that especially in these key positions and i'm not just talking about that from an irish perspective i'm talking about that uh, right throughout europe uh, if you want to you know develop the sort of game that that sells and is interesting and um holds people's attention um and allows you know encourages parents to have their kids uh, play we need these guys protected i think yeah i agree completely, completely we, yeah. we were talking about this yeah. earlier in the year and if you don't address it you're just left with uh, a field full of players who are hitting each other late and all the skillful guys are on the sideline getting head injury assessments but just jerry one of the themes we mentioned sexton and murray there and one of the themes again of the weekend was that um, both had to go off uh, for assessments um two different results and there's an inquiry into monsters processes could you explain exactly what's happened with connor well, um, the EPC or um, uh, Medical Advisory Board chairman has will, will convene um, a committee to look into this incident to see if the, the Munster handled the uh, case um, sufficiently well because if there's a suspected concussion, then he should have been removed from the field of play without any recourse to the HIA. I think, to a degree, this is in the fallout of what happened with the George North incident and one or two others, the world governing body, and it's very arbitrary arms and a tournament organisers such as EPCR, perhaps not all to the same extent in France or elsewhere, but certainly EPCR want to be seen to be taking a very close look at all of this so that the, the medical staffs and the management teams are being watched when they're treating players. It, it partly, I think, it might be for optics and just so they, look, they seem to be doing this. 
uh, in the current climate but also of course concussion is such a serious issue and we don't want players returning to the pitch if they have been concussed Sorry I just to cut across as well you also don't want the medical team being able to say oh we didn't see the video feed or the TV feed mm. that the whole crowd would see as we saw with Wales and George North yep. so you know there's that weird anomaly there where they could claim in the past, oh, we didn't see what 80,000 people in the stadium saw, but, but carry on. Yeah, I think certainly when it comes to um, well-televised games, that's no longer an excuse. And I know, for example, that in Ireland, they would have a, a couple of doctors um, observing the game and one will have access to a replay up in the stand from all the different angles and can be relaying the information down to the doctor that's running onto the pitch. Um, in, I do think, though, what it does, Simon, it, it completely undermines the HIA process. Because if a concussed player can now pass an HIA, which Munster claimed Conor Murray passed on the side of the pitch, then it raises the question of whether the, the, the HIA is sufficient anymore if they can't detect a concussion and they claim a concussion actually happened. What do you make of it, Shane? Uh, the, te- the technology actually exists, and I think Ireland uh, at a national level already use it. A company called uh, My Play by Play has uh, handheld devices. Um, that um, can be used by the medical staff to actually um, look in real time at the video replays. So they don't—they're not reliant on somebody um, in the stand um, telling them, and they're not reliant on their own eyes. So they can actually see—they can hold in a Pam, uh, t- a Pam um, computer or a, a, an iPad. And they can look exactly at uh, the images and the contact that happened prior to it. You think that would have, that alone would have um, informed their opinion. Um, I think what Jerry says is the most important um, aspect of this: that uh, if people, and there has been maybe a couple of occasions now that um, players have passed uh, um, return to play protocols, um, where it seems it's you know obvious to the to the lay person that there has been a there has been a um, if not a, a, a loss of consciousness, um, that um, really puts the the cat amongst the pigeons because then you're talking that your protocol isn't fit for purpose, and if that's the case, um, we move back into the realm again of what why we have really have the uh, return to play protocol my opinion would be if there is uh, a necessity to have a, a, a HIA then um, then that in itself is enough reason to warrant the player being removed from the game and I think we're moved towards that Shane the camera showed Jerry Flannery and the entire uh, backroom team celebrating pretty wildly after the try um, is there something extra energising for Munster about a late win with a dramatic try a brilliant, brilliantly constructed try like that um, yeah, there is. It, it was a really positive. And it was really it was such a positive moment. And uh, you s- spoke there, Mark. You s- stated about Jerry Flannery and the way uh, the players were acting. I was looking at right through the game, and not just through this game, through a number of games. Look at someone like um, Peter O'Mahony, and I've been, you know, I've been really watching his body language um, after tries and when there's other players have done well over the last number of weeks. There's a smile on his face, and you know he's not—he's not really a demonstrative person. You know, he—he's—he's quite—he keeps his cards close to his te- chest, but he's been brimming with energy and uh, positivity, and that smile has gone right throughout mm. uh, the team. And you know, Zebo has that as well. Keith Earls the same, and all these players who can, uh, who are contributing in, a, in uh, as huge leaders. Um, to what Munster are doing, are doing so within their, uh, with a smile on their face. And that you know, leads back to the first point I was making. There's a certain energy that can develop within a team 
that can get you over the line when you are only playing maybe tactically at 50 or 60 percent as their head coach said something else something intangible um makes you win and that you know playing with a smile on your face and enjoying it and playing for your friends and of course we've got this you know this this shadow of anthony foley um um it, it covers this entire season these things um can add up to something else now i don't think You'll win necessarily win a championship unless you get your tactical level up in the you know in eighty ninety percent of of what you can do, but you can certainly stay in the fight, and that's what uh, Munster have done here. Um, in particular, you know we I spoke about last week and the week before about you know key players stepping up, and if you look at uh, what Earls did for that try, that was an incredible mm-hmm. bit of skill, mm-hmm. really smart play really did see more he's a good defender and then dropped it off and, and Saidi did really well to, to get the try but it's the players who are now performing m- uh, most highly for um, Munster are the players that you want performing at the highest level yeah it was a great example of a team changing the point of attack and there's almost nothing a defence can do and Leinster as well they were like the red arrows at times they're just Montpellier couldn't get a handle on where the runner was coming from and what angle they were coming from and at what pace they were coming at um, and I think the section of the Leinster game to analyse properly is before the red card for Francois Stein, because up to that point, Leinster were brilliant and they were blowing Montpellier off the park anyway. So we can ignore the final scoreline, but we can look at the game up to that point and say they were heading in the, that direction anyway, and well, the game was heading in that direction. You can be as sure as possible that they were going to go ahead and get a bonus point. They were already two tries up and were hunting for a third try when that incident happened and it was only 27 minutes into the game. Um, yeah, they, I, I, as you say that, I was thinking of that line that kind of um, out-to-in line Issa Naseba took off Gary Ringrose's um, offload from the skip pass and turn from Johnny Sexton before that, all right in the gain line. Defenders transfixed, like you said, just not knowing where the next one is coming from. I don't think Montpellier come across many attacks like that in the top 14, playing that kind of brand of rugby with that variety. It's just of a different level, like a different team compared to this point a year ago in terms of their attacking game. Um... And, you know, it helps that individuals are on fire at the moment. You've got Johnny Sexton back in there. So if they can keep all their trump cards in place after Six Nations, always the problem with Leinster is that they're bulk suppliers to Ireland in the Six Nations. And because of the way that the season has been restructured, I think they've got one Pro 12 game after the Six Nations before they go straight into a quarterfinal then. And that is going to be tricky for the Irish teams because, you know, Munster will have a contingent with the Irish squad as well. But certainly Leinster will. And generally, you know, teams don't come through the Six Nations unscathed. It, it did for Leinster one year, if you think back to Johnny Sexton getting injured in the Six Nations. They had to go to, I think it was a semi-final way to Toulouse, and they, yeah. they didn't have Johnny Sexton there, and it really hurt them. And you just, fingers crossed for Leinster, that the, the demands, which are intense, and this is why they got a week off over Christmas. We all might all lament the fact that what we didn't have four fully locked and loaded derbies, but that week's rest at the end of November, at the end of December, at the end of January, these are all, I think, very, very important for these players because they cannot just go full tilt all the time. Sorry, what was really interesting um, from both games, two different things came out for me tactically, how um, these teams are um, have moved on their game. One was how Leicester identified what would you would see on paper as uh, Nagusa as one of um, Montpellier's best players, but they terrorised him. They recognised that uh, he was all at sea at defence. He wasn't connecting um, onto the end of the li- uh, end of the defensive line. He was coming up and then sitting down. He was a flat pass would beat him every time. He was doing no work in on the pen. 
ended them at the back at three and they they exploited that time after time after time and um, he must be going home with his tail between his legs I don't think he would have uh, for a long time he's experienced um, that sort of a a beating and someone who you would have thought was a great player um, in attack it's not it's obvious that that's not a good, a good enough and that was identified during the week and implemented um, during the game that and identifying that they were playing uh, their, uh, Montpellier were playing their hooker off the back of the line out exploited, exploited for two tries um, and that is really dissecting an opposition through the video the week before by Leo Cullen and his team and then executing it on the pitch. And then from the Munster perspective, I thought their you know, the defensive work has been excellent um, all year. They've moved it on to another level. But I think they now have, you know, they the stats would say they're the best um, defensive system um, uh, in the Pro 12. I think they are... That's transferring to Europe, which is a higher stage. And I think like simple things like you know the fight to roll away when you make the tackle. There was a number of occasions where they could have given penalties away, but the players in those rooks are so um, aware of what they're meant to do and how disciplined that they should be. Many occasions, not committing to rooks, or when they did, making sure they got out and up on their feet again and formed that defensive line. Now, two different areas, but uh, very impressive from both sides. Speaking of Leo Cullen and his team, Shane, uh, last week you weren't too forthcoming with praise for Stuart Lancaster and you obviously questioned his initial appointment. Thought you might be interested in these quotes from Johnny Sexton. Uh, Stuart Lancaster has come in and had a big influence on the style of rugby. This is the stuff we practice every day in training, the unstructured part of the game. We spend time on our offloading game, so it's not by chance or fluke. It's being worked on every day. Stuart has had a great influence on us and the whole organisation and it's a, it's a great place to be again. He's one stop off saying Stuart Lancaster is the greatest coach the world has ever seen. What would Johnny Sexton know about Stuart Lancaster <laughs> after all? <laughs> well, you know what? I think, you know, I, I stand corrected and obviously he's had a, an influence and, and Johnny's, ha, um, you know, is, is attributing um, influence to him there. But you're not convinced. Uh, no, I'm not. I just would say overall uh, as a, he- a head coach has um, it is his philosophy on the overall style of play and the overall tactics of the team. And he has to be credited with that. Individual skills, um, you know, Lancaster may be having a bigger input or, or helping to implement that philosophy. But the philosophy is Leo Cullens, and I don't think we should move away from that. It, not it, not it, quite Ken's apology to Brendan Rogers, was it? <laughs> <laughs> Johnny Sexton, unprompted, did bring up Stuart Lancaster. And he, Johnny Sexton doesn't say things in the media by accident. He knows what he's going to say before he says it. Yeah, I'd also like. Uh, I'd I'd wonder if it was connected to anything else because he he uh, there is a it is quite strict praise just for Lancaster. So you know there, I, I just wonder how that went down necessarily in the in the backroom team as well because it it does seem to be uh, heaped entirely on him. But uh, I again, uh, as much as I'd hate to disagree with Johnny Sexton on it, thing, uh, I think um, you know. There's a philosophy that has, you know, come about, and I think if you remember um, Simon and, and Jerry, I don't know if you remember the two um, two long games last year, and Leinster weren't playing particularly well, but I watched them really closely, and technically they and tactically they had dissected both those teams, and their game plan was imperfect on both of them, and the execution wasn't, and you know, so if it was that moment I was thinking, right, Leo Cullen. You know, he has the brain to do this. He has the philosophy to do this. He just needs to get his players to actually implement it. And it seems as if Lancaster has had an influence on 
implementing it. But I've no doubt, or I, you know, I, I do still believe that it's uh, it's coming from Leo Cullen. Jerry Connacht beats Everay by forty odd points. Um, it's the expected hammering. Mm-hmm. Uh, Pat Lamb has described the quarterfinal in the European Cup as being bigger than the Pro Twelve win, which I can't say I agree with. What do you think? No, I wouldn't agree with that at all. No, I think it's um, it's in the it's in the here and now. So coaches have a tendency, or players have a tendency, mm. or even journalists have a tendency to describe what's in the here and now as the biggest and best of all time. Whatever, I I think Connacht's first trophy in their history, given where they've come from, to didn't beat Leinster in the manner that they did in the final, having beaten Glasgow back to back, was a stupendous achievement. Um, I think this would be certainly comparable. It would certainly be a wonderful way of backing it up to get out of a pool and containing... For them to be rubbing shoulders with Toulouse and Wasps, given the discrepancy in budgets and plane strength and um, rota of internationals on their books, and not least Connacht's current injury woes, it would be a remarkable achievement. I still think it's a difficult assignment for them next Sunday. I think it's great that they go there. The way it's now panned out, my read of it is, if they finish second, they'll definitely qualify. But to finish second, they're going to have to get at least a bonus point in defeat away to Toulouse and deny Toulouse one. If Toulouse and themselves finish level on points, whatever way you add up the figures, Toulouse would go through in the head-to-head. And I always felt, if you go back to the very first match, um, Connacht were so excited to get in front through the Bundyaki trying. It was a 23-22 or 20, Greg Nelson's conversion as well to put them just in front. But they then had two five-metre attacking lineouts from penalties. They lost one and they're penalised on the other. If they convert either of those into convert a try, which Jimmy Duffy, the forwards coach, and John Muldoon would expect them to do 50% of the time, so they had two chances. If they converted either of those, they would have got a, fifth, they would have got a bonus point, they would have got a fifth point and denied to lose one. Look at the table now and that two-point swing and they'd, they'd be virtually in the quarterfinals already. And you can't help but fear that that might come back to bite them. But they've got a chance. They go to Toulouse, who look dangerous, who are looking a bit better again in the latter weeks. I saw them beat Stade Francais last week away with two late tries, a come-from-behind win. I know Stade aren't going great. They were a little unlucky not to beat Wasps the weekend, let's be honest about it. But that at least meant that Connacht have a chance with just getting a bonus point. I think it's going to be a fairly compelling and fascinating end to the whole um, pool stages on Sunday afternoon and Stade Ernest Vallon. Shane, the mathematics of this final weekend are always ridiculously complicated. And when you were playing with Leinster, there was quite a few occasions where, you know, things changed very quickly at the end. What's the best approach for Connacht? Because they know a win will definitely get them through, but then in the back of their heads, a losing bonus point might or probably will get them through. What, what would your advice be? Well, they, I don't think they will overthink this because we've seen and they've implemented their, their philosophy no matter what the circumstances, no matter uh, what the uh, game, no matter what the situation, no matter what um, the opposition. They've um, consistently stuck with their philosophy, which is to you know move the ball at all costs, um, to have a very, very limited kicking game. Uh, and they're not a particularly pragmatic team. They're a team that... Um, you know, thinks about what they've practiced and then implements it. And I think um, for that reason, it makes things probably a little more simple for them. It also makes it gives the opportunity to um, really get blown out um, because um, that's, in some positions they're down to um, second and third choice players. And as much as we malign uh, to lose, they still have quality. And um, what we did pick up, and it was hard to pick up a whole lot from the game against uh, the truly awful Zebra at the weekend. Mm. And what we did pick up is that um, Connacht still have a propensity to um, run from deep, um, ignore the kicking options. Zebra had one in the backfield, um, and I would imagine Toulouse will do something similar. Even with one in the backfield, they chose not to kick. 
And um, a couple of times the ball went on the deck. There was turnovers. And when you're when you're spread wide like that and the ball goes on the deck, you're immediately very vulnerable. Um, so it was the case against Zebra. Um, Toulouse aren't certainly going to be any worse than them at capitalising on opportunities. Um, and they will have many elements of their game that are much, much better. So I think uh, it's a difficult task, not one that's impossible, but uh, it, it does seem as if you know this may be the last, um, the last real throw of this this Connacht team, uh, and a lot hinges on it. I I certainly don't agree with Pat Lamb that uh, it's bigger than the uh, the cup win because that cup win will stand um, in uh, forever. It'll stand forever in, in the annals of Connacht's um, history, and uh, even if they get through the knockout stages, this won't. Um, so it does feel, you know, they've lost a lot of players last year. They're losing more players next year. I see John Cooney's just signed for Ulster uh, as of today. Uh, Pat Lamb, you know, that cult of personality that developed around Pat Lamb is is kind of dangerous. It, uh, it was probably worthwhile in order to get them a, a, a Pro 12. Um, and they'll thank, uh, Connick will thank them for that. But uh, it does seem as if they're really battling against uh, uh, the tide uh, from here on in. Final quick word on Leinster and Munster for next week, Shane. We're thinking an easy win over Racing and a pissed off Ron O'Gara is a guarantee, I presume. And uh, what problems will Leinster face in playing cast in a, away from home in a dead rubber, uh, from your experience? Well, what about the win, uh, easy win? Uh, I suggest the pissed off Ronan O'Gara is probably guaranteed either way. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I do think Munster will uh, will win that um, quite comfortably, I'd imagine. Um, and I think again, it will add another little bit of a tail to this to this season. And there will be a, a sellout crowd, and there is mm. the the Ronan element to it, and the feeling, and we'll see the smiles, and we'll see the defence, and if we can see an improvement in attack. Um, I think it sends a message. It really does send a message. Nobody would want to play uh, once through the next r- round, no matter who you are, what players you have. So I think that's um, that's going to happen. Um, Leinster, I think, it will maybe a case of um, a, a tricky opening period, but ultimately having enough class to um, to see themselves through. They again are, are playing with you know incredible confidence, as much as you know, as much as maybe. Any time in the last five years, so since they last won um, the Heineken Cup, um, they have an ultra young back line that has no um, that has no baggage from the last uh, couple of years where they didn't hit their straps in the way that they want to. So, um, I think we'll see another um, ambitious and confident performance from Leinster, and that'll be enough. Um, you know, it won't be it'll be nothing like the weekend just gone by, but uh, I think uh, they'll have enough. Last word to you, Jerry. Well, uh, Castor are a different kettle of fish at home. They're, I think they're virtually unbeatable at home this season. They, they've won their two home games in Europe, lost their three away games. But by dint of them losing away to Northampton, that pretty much puts them out of contention, more or less, I think, unless results really went their way over the weekend of making it as one of the best runners up. So I'd agree with, entirely with Shane that if they, they get, let's get through that first 20 or 30 minutes and disabuse Castor of any notion of winning in front of their home fans, they've got a great chance. I think it couldn't have worked out better as well for Munster that Racing put Leicester to the sword. It means they've redeemed some of their pride and they're off zero point in their pool. And they, the much bigger game over the next two weeks for them is Leon away um, in the top 14. They've targeted that one for a while. So you would expect that Dan Carter and co. will not be making the trip to Thoman Park this weekend. Yeah, looking forward to seeing all the Irish provinces in action next weekend, especially the Stuart Lancaster-inspired Leinster. Uh, lads, thanks a lot for talking to us. Cheers. Thanks, Mark. Oh! 
the interweb. Owen McDevitt. Worldwide. The Murph and Mackey for most welcome Irishman of the year goes to Owen McDevitt. Owen, 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 Owen McDevitt. From Ireland's second captain show. All up in the interweb. Owen McDevitt. Worldwide. Second captain. Those guys are like, those guys are like family to me, man. Owen McDevitt. This is Locke. The coolest song I ever heard in my whole life. Owen McDevitt. All of you said I wouldn't make Stop it. Stop talking about Tom Finney. He said I was a loser. This guy is a bit of a turkey. <laughs> All right. He said I was a fucking psycho. But look at me now. All up in the interweb. Owen McDevitt. Worldwide. To say, for example, the Barcelona team you worked at, is it fair to say anybody could have managed those guys? No, of course not. Not only are the rugby cultures progressing in Ireland, Murph, but the rugby men of this country are more comfortable in showing their softer sides, I've noticed. Yeah. Um, cuddly back rows, Peter Mahoney and CJ Sander, they uh, shared a kiss live on television. Explain this to anyone who didn't see it. Uh, so in the post-match analysis, Alan Quinlan is uh, talking away, just trying to describe what, what, where this Munster performance and uptick in uh, performances uh, generally came from. And uh, as they often do, they cut to live footage from inside the dressing room. So the guys are just uh, on their way, analysing away. Usually meatheads beating their chest. Yeah, uh, or, or just looking very tired. Uh, nothing to see here. But then in the Munster dressing room, uh, a circle has has uh, has magically appeared, and into the middle of that circle step Peter O'Mahony and C.J. Stander, and they kiss each other on the lips, and uh, kind of as they're analysing the sky presenter, all of a sudden goes, oh, "Hold hold up, what did we just see there?" So it turns out that basically Munster rugby have this thing where anytime there there's two players uh, having angry words with each other, either at training or in a game. They have to st- stand into the middle of a circle and kiss and make up at the end of that training session or a match. Something that maybe Mark and Ken could do <laughs> uh, today at the end of our I think uh, Ken's going to be day. pretty comfortable with that. Yeah, I, th- I, I don't see any issues there. Um, but yeah, it was a beautiful, uh, beautiful tennis. The reaction moment. from the Munster dressing room was what you'd expect from a primary school class who saw a couple kiss. All jumping up and down and wedgies and like monkey style movements and hoo, 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 you know <laughs> <laughs> they should be pretty used to it by now. I mean, it happens yeah. at the end of every training session. Yeah, yeah. There you go. Uh, and what about our favourite rugby player, Tyke Furlong Murph? The guy became even more of a cutie pie over the weekend. Yeah, uh, he did an interview with Sky Sports, which was shown before the Montpellier game, and uh, he w- he was talking about how much he packs for an away game, mm. and he he uh, gave the information that. On away days, he brings his own pillow everywhere he goes. So he has his own pillow that he likes. Consistency in sleep is a very important thing, he said. Um, which I think is a little... I mean, does he have a blankie as well? We, we don't We don't know. We're not entirely sure. But uh, yes, he brings his own pillow everywhere he goes. But that, that's nice. just because... that's The image I have in my head is him at our live show when he immediately picked up the cushion that was beside him on the couch yeah. and grasped it throughout the whole interview. Yeah, I think he just left it there so that he... He could just have his arm. His he could leave his arm in a resting position mm. while also holding the microphone close to his mouth. Um, but I, it it kind of seems now as don't if ruin, it, don't ruin my story. Yeah. But it just kind of seemed weird that he didn't bring his own pillow since he was so attached to it. He brings it to interviews now as well. Uh, two press releases came into us today in relation to Sean Cronin. By the way, uh, okay. one with really bad news, one with great news. 
he's out of the Six Nations with a hamstring injury, which is really unfortunate. But this good news popped into her inbox. Media invite. You're invited to the launch of the inaugural Irish Mini Golf Open with Sean Cronin. This is the launch of the inaugural Irish Mini Golf Open in association, in association with the World Mini Golf Sport Federation and the Irish Mini Golf Association. In attendance will be Sean Cronin, Irish Rugby International and Irish Mini Golf Ambassador. Mini Golf. <laughs> mini Golf. Mini Golf. <laughs> I'd like to congratulate him on that role. Well, listen, um, you got to, you know... In, there's going to be some sweet photo-ops uh, at that uh, <laughs> press conference I just want to be clear that mini-golf is like the Crazy windmill. golf. Crazy yeah. golf, yeah. yeah, yeah. Sean Cronin atop a windmill tomorrow. Oh, well, you could absolutely guarantee if it's, if it's The one sport you can play with no hamstring. <laughs> yeah, maybe, actually. Uh, I've always felt an affinity with Sean Cronin ever since I fake-injected him with Ivomec. On uh, live television. National, te- national television, I always feel I've I've been rooting for him in a very special way. He better not step into your territory though, Murph. You're still Ireland's foremost Quasar ambassador, right? <laughs> and, uh, it's a lifetime uh, role, Mark. That's so twi- you have to kill me, Sean Grodin, <laughs> to get that off me, uh, or beat you in Quasar. Well, one or the other. Uh, I, don't think, I don't think the second option is going to happen though. So it will have to be a fight to the death. By the way, in the three shows I've presented, uh, you know, I won't get another chance now for about another six months. I managed yeah. to get Quasar in twice. <laughs> <laughs> it's like that's a my pri- yeah. Richie had this amazing psychotherapy session with Luke Fitzgerald. You know, with absolutely no mistakes, and everyone was engaged. I got Quasar in twice. <laughs> that's what I'm. Proud Not of. once, but twice. Ken, what's coming up on the football show? That's yeah. <laughs> They have asked for that, really. Well, you can laugh. I to walk up. I'm a little bit of an idealist, but having said that, I want to be like me. You don't know what you're talking about. What did you know? I managed to stay alive for six days. I'd say it to your face, not say it to now. I'm down to Anfield and we'll see them, won't we? What you doing down here, you shawny man? Well, a lot of it was about uh, Jose Mourinho and when the right substitution is the wrong substitution or the wrong substitution is the right substitution. Um, it appears that I'm in a small minority here uh, in not being hugely impressed by what Jose Mourinho has done so far in taking the most expensive team in the world to sixth in the league. Um, but we talked a bit about some of that with uh, John Byrne and Miguel Delaney and Diego Costa and Pep Guardiola and various other things that happened over the weekend. Did you get those last three questions into John Byrne? Um... I actually felt that the piece really took flight <laughs> just needed, in the just in the last just few needed, minutes. It, it needed just, two more questions. It, it was like plateauing at an extremely high level, but then it was just. Okay, now I mentioned Katie Cook at the start of the show. Katie's a 19-year-old runner and student from Dublin who completed her second marathon last year. Now, what makes her achievements really remarkable is that Katie has a severe form of epilepsy, which results in her having a number of seizures mid-race. Um, Dr. Colin Doherty is her neurologist and also a running partner. And Katie and Colin are both in the studio with us right now. Thanks so much for popping into us, guys. Thank you for having us. Thanks. Uh, Katie, you have an incredible story. Um, first off, talk us through last October's Dublin Marathon and what that experience was like. You finished in four hours 29, right? Yeah, I was very disappointed with that one. But I guess what was different about that one than the year before was that I had a few difficulties. Mm. Um, I actually had a lot of problems with my bowel in my second marathon and I had a few complications with it and had to go to hospital and stuff afterwards. Um, so that's why it was a lot slower than the year before. Mm. We were hoping to get it sub four, weren't we, Colin? Yes, we were. <laughs> um, which didn't happen. But sure, like that's the way it goes. What's the experience like for you, Colin, when you're running alongside Katie and things don't go to plan? Well, the plan is that she's going to have seizures. Mm. So it's just, you know, uh, <laughs> Sorry. you know, she- sheer grinding agony running 26 miles accompanied by absolute terror every 25 minutes. Uh, that's the way it is. You know, we, um, we've we done a few races together. We've done about four or five now. And 
uh, even on a small 10 miles, she'll have a couple of events. Now, luckily, she gets a little warning before it, seizure, so usually there's enough time to sort of lower her to the ground. But my main job, I say this to everyone, is I, my main job is to stop people carting her off. Because once you're in a mm. very organised race, you know, the yellow coats are everywhere and the St. John's ambulance people, and they just want mm. to cart her off. Obviously, I mean, quite reasonably. And I just have to stand by her and say, no, I'm her doctor and she's going to recover from this and she'll be... But like sometimes they're really <laughs> insistent, like they don't care. Like, they I mean, me, they do, that's their job, but you know what I mean. They asked me for ID once. Yeah. Like, you know, I was, oh, I, so I was in my running gear, <laughs> you know, we'd run about 10 miles and I said, you're not serious. They were like quizzing him, they're like, so what's your doctor number? <laughs> There, so. we, we get fake doctors around here all the time. We've heard, the, we've heard this before. <laughs> yeah. Um, Colin, f- first of all, we'll, we'll come back to the marathon, come back to why this motivates you and why you want to put yourself through uh, an experience like this yeah. on a constant basis in a second, Katie. But Colin, talk to us about what epilepsy is, first mm-hmm. of all, because, you know, we have an idea in our head what, how they manifest themselves. But talk to us about the condition itself and about the various seizures that can occur. Yeah, sure. Um, So first of all, it's very common, much more common than you might expect. There's about 40,000 people in Ireland with the condition. Mm. So it's about 1% of the population. And um, essentially, it's a condition which is characterized by alterations in behavior or consciousness, which come on usually without warning or very little warning. And they pepper the person's life experience all the way through. Um, Now, these alterations can be anything from, you know, a brief loss of awareness, a staring spell, right up to a full convulsion or fit, which you'd normally think of as an epileptic seizure. And Katie's are sort of in between that. She will definitely lose awareness. She'll fall down. She doesn't have the convulsion in the typical sense of the word. She has a little bit of jerking, but then she co- and she comes around very quickly, which is another unusual feature which allows her to run because a lot of people with epilepsy will recognise what I'm saying about seizures, but they will also feel a profound lethargy sometimes for hours, even days after a seizure. So they're really not fit for anything. So the type that that, that uh, Katie has allows her to do that. There's about 40 different types. Um, so that's another surprising thing. So a lot of us in the field of this, we call it the epilepsies rather than epilepsy. And um, essentially, it's, it's kind of an electrical short circuit in the brain. The brain consists of billions of cells. And when a population of these cells fires synchronously, that's abnormal. Cells usually fire desynchronously. And mm-hmm. as you're talking to me now, normal consciousness is characterized by desynchronized firing. But when you when a population of cells fires together, so the smaller the population of cells firing, usually the less obvious the seizure, but the bigger the number. So if all the cells in the body go at once, that's when the big convulsion happens. And what's a typical number of seizures per day? Because I've heard you describe Katie as being amongst the Premier League of uh, yeah, she's seizure Premier sufferers. League, yeah. I feel so special. Yeah, I know. Like, thank you. Yeah, she's Arsenal, and she's going down. You know, she's getting better. <laughs> um, no, she... Uh, yeah, so, look, there is... Like, daily seizures is not typical. That's the first mm. thing to say. That is absolutely not typical. Um, it's important to say that of these 40,000 people, if... of those, so the majority, if they're on their regular medication, they should have no seizures. Now, seizures break through for all sorts of reasons. People forget medication. They stay up too late, you know, one thing and another. But if they're doing everything correct with their lifestyle, they'll be seizure-free. So 30% only are hard to treat. The medications we have don't fully treat them. And it's anything from one seizure a year up to... Katie, which is the, you know, again, you know, can be 12, 15 seizures. And a lot of hers happen at night. It sounds like more Champions League than the Premier League. Really. <laughs> yeah, um, really. um, Katie, talk to us about your own condition then. Um, you were eight when you and your mum first realised it was potentially a problem and you started getting seizures. Were you, you were diagnosed then when you were um, nine or ten, I think. How did it affect your life 
in school uh, in in kind of those early years? It was really tough. Um, I actually, I don't think I've talked about this like before, but um, I just moved school. I was in the school three days and I started having seizures. Like, so I had no friends. Like people just knew my name and that was mm. it. And <laughs> I like my first seizures were bizarre. Like that's why no one, like everyone kind of thought it was panic attacks. They had no idea what it was because they presented so differently to what you and I would know as seizures. Um, my first one was banging on a table mm. and kicking and like stomping and throwing things. Like it just kind of looked like I was having a tantrum. It didn't like really look like anything else. And I'd have maybe four of them a day and then they would just build and build. And I think one time I actually slapped the teacher. Mm. But like all, like I couldn't help. It was just kind of involuntary movements. Um, so people just thought I was an absolute weirdo. But like I was very lucky back then was as soon as I was diagnosed and on medicine, I was actually more or less controlled for a couple of years. Okay. Like I had a few breakthrough seizures um, as quite a lot of people do with epilepsy. But when I say breakthrough, I mean like maybe one or two a month, that was it. Mm. And then as soon as I turned 13, it kind of just all got turned upside down. It seems really incredible um, what running has done for you and, and yeah. what you're, you're able to get out of it. But maybe before we discuss that, talk to us about, if I can, kind of the bad times for you, because it kind of seems around around 2012 that it was particularly difficult for you and that you spent a, a prolonged period of time in hospital. Yeah. And then when you did eventually come out, you, you needed a long period of rehabilitation before, you know, running could remotely become a possibility for yeah. you. Yeah, like I think the thing that I always say that shocks people is that like I walked into a hospital and I was wheeled out of it mm-hmm. um, so it was quite like a shocking time um, I never could have imagined any of that like things that did happen in hospital that happened to me like I thought you know I was going in I was walking in to get seizures sorted out I was having two a week and I thought that was bad at the time and I was wheeled out of hospital nine months later and I was having about 16 17 seizures a day Wow. Yeah, they like it just like it just got a bit too much. When did running come into your head at all as something that could work as part of your therapy? It would have been as soon as I'd kind of started walking again. Like as you say, I went through a long process of rehabilitation. Um I like lost all um focus in my trunk. So basically my trunk kind of collapsed and I couldn't hold my back and hips up. Um so I had to kind of learn how to sit up again. I wasn't able to sit up by myself, so I had to constantly have back support or else my back would just kind of fold. Um so as soon as I'd kind of learned to kind of sit up by myself again and then slowly walking um and then over time my hip kind of gradually got like balanced is that Mm. the right word um and then I guess I got it into my head that I did want to get it back into exercise like I've always adored sports but I truly missed it when I couldn't do that so I guess I got it into my head again that that's I'd love to do that um like mentally I don't think I can ever even put it into words what it's done for me I think that like I notice if I don't run within a couple of days like I just notice that kind of like bogged down feeling like cloudiness um tiredness letharginess like it's like it's like crazy um it just helps me like leaps and bounds in that area that I can never even express and put into words um I think in terms of epilepsy I don't know if it's helped me hugely in Mm. that area but I know it's helped me deal with it in a way that like I won't ever be able to describe Colin how did you two first decide to 
I suppose, become training partners together and running partners together? And also, is it counterintuitive in some respects that Katie uh, puts herself through these extremes of running where, you know, it increases heart rate and apparently that can cause seizures in itself? So how were you, were you convinced from the start and uh, how did that process work? So first of all, you have to know Katie to know that when Katie decides to do something, you know, you're going to have to go with it. Okay, she's a force of nature. It's Bonaparte syndrome. Anyway, so she decided she was doing it. And uh, the main concern from her mum was that, you know, she was running and she would have these seizures. I mean, she's having 10 or 15 seizures a day. Mm. Um, And I can't remember the exact day of the conversation. We were trying to remember this, but she said that she wanted to do the marathon. She came in one day into the clinic. And now I wasn't looking after her in 2012. So she came, I think it was probably 2013. Yeah, came I, was, first I transferred James's. from the children's yeah. hospital. And you were already walking and you're yeah. back running and you said, I want to run a marathon. And I, I'm i a marathon veteran of the Dublin Marathon. I've done... You've done eight, isn't it? I've done ten wow. marathons. Not ten Dublins, but I've done ten marathons. And I said, off. well, why don't we run together? So so that was put a little bit of gloss on it for her mum. <laughs> but it was important that, that, I, that somebody run with her in the marathon for the simple reason, again, mm-hmm. that she would be carted off by people who thinking that she was an extremist and really she needed to be kept going. Um, so that's how that's how we... Um, and I think it was after the women's as well. Do you that's remember? right, you had done the 10 kilometres, yeah. the women's mini marathon. Yeah, like, you know, the women's mini marathon, yeah. I'd just done that and I was actually kind of trying to do quite well in that. Um but I, again, like I got held back by nurses and like the, the side people. I actually had to run away from two paramedics <laughs> on two occasions. Like as in, like, like I full on had to run away from them. I think I told Colin about that. Like in the marathon, like I'm going to have probably about 10. So that's 10 occasions where I'm going to have to run away from paramedics. I think I might need your help, Colin. And Colin, as far as your own doubts professionally, when it came to your decision on, on this kind of treatment or, or running itself, what were your thoughts on it? Yeah, so I mean, I had a lot of conflicting thoughts about it. I mean, again, you know, Katie is a unique individual, and you know, she had a she had a desire and a, and a drive to do this. I mean, the modern treatment of a condition like epilepsy, and it's probably true of all chronic illnesses, is that we're really there to try and, as a you know, as their therapist or their doctor, to try and give them as normal a life as possible, and to allow them to express themselves in whatever they want to do. Now, as it turns out, in relation to sport in general, and I think marathon running in particular. You know, if you take 100 marathoners of any age and you match them up against another group of people, you'll find in general across a range of health parameters that they're much healthier. Um, And my general feeling is that if people, I mean, were to run, I mean, any sport is good, but running in particular develops huge benefits to stamina and general health that it actually is a benefit. I mean, I genuinely think that, that I know Katie's, you know, in terms of the, say, the number of seizures that Katie has had, it probably hasn't made a huge impact, but... Yeah, uh, in I relation to, say, uh, hospital admissions, which were happening monthly. I mean, she yeah, was admitted to Vincent's I, with, with uncontrolled status, seizures, yeah. you know, for months on end. And that has stopped. I mean, it's a small, it's a small mercy that she's, that doesn't happen now. And But I genuinely believe that, that again, that combination of, you know, uh, buying into the person's expectations for their life, mm. you know, with a chronic condition, and also the fact that actually running has all of these unanticipated benefits to health, um, that that convinced me that this was the right thing to do. Now, you know, and also the fact that I'm there, you know, when the seizures happen, which is, you know, my area of special interest. And I know that I'd be able to act if something, you know, particular happened. 
I listened to the documentary uh, No Time to Lose on Radio 1 which is about you and your prep for last year's half marathon um, you recorded training and after one of your runs you changed the sprints and we heard you having a seizure on tape do you have that clip Simon? Katie is doing some sprint training all of a sudden she veers off the track eyes roll and she drops to the ground For Katie, running is not a treatment for epilepsy, but a way of coping with a serious illness. Okay. That happened so quick. I know. Right, come on. Let's go. Let's go. No time to rest. So in that instance, Colin isn't around. Uh, there seems to be some poor radio producer that was uh, who, yep. who, who, sounded, who sounded quite freaked out in that instance. Oh, poor Jason. But poor Jason. Are you, when you're training like that, you're doing that by yourself. So yeah. you can feel when a seizure is going to come along and then you just trust yourself that you, you'll pass through it and then you'll continue again. Can you tell us what it feels like to have a seizure? Can you put it into words? My seizure, I'd say, like as in, I know they're all different, um, but... My warning sign's actually quite awful compared to the actual seizure itself. Um, it's really bizarre, but I become very aware of all the exits and I kind of have this overcome feeling of someone trying to get me. Like, it feels like someone's going to come for me. Um, so I feel really vulnerable. And then it's kind of mixed with the feeling of, you know, you have an awkward conversation with someone and you have that feeling in your head and it's really uncomfortable and awkward. So it's kind of mixed with that feeling and then like a really vulnerable feeling as well. Um, so that would be my warning sign and that's just before the seizure and then if I'm partially away in the seizure I will also have that in my head at the same time like with seizing and stuff it's, I think it's really interesting because you know we all like to have control over, over our bodies and exactly yeah. w- what we're doing but there, there has to be some an acceptance at some point in your own life where you said okay well I'm going to lose control. This is just going to happen in my life and it's going to continue to happen. I'm just going to have to get on with it. I suppose in, in some ways there's a there's almost a control in that in some respects. Do you know what I mean? This is going to happen. That's the way it is. And you can just get on with it and continue with your running. Like, I want a normal life. I want to be, like, a normal 19-year-old. I want to be a normal 18-year-old, 17-year-old, 16-year-old. Mm. And, like, I think I came to a certain point, like, after I'd been so sick, I just, I was so fed up with sitting in a hospital bed, being sad about it. And I know I can still continue to be sad about it. It's just I'm not going to be out there doing all the great things that I could be doing with my life. And I think you have to get to a certain point, especially when you have like an illness that continues to go on. You have to accept it. You can't sulk about it anymore because it's not going to make it go away. Like it's still there. Like I could sulk about it, but what? it's not going to really do anything except change my attitude. Um, so yeah, I have bad days. But apart from that, I just, I want to be happy. Are there any other runners with uh, epilepsy that you work with? Yeah, so uh, this year um, we ran... Katie's been a great um, uh, talisman, talisperson person for our organisation raising money for neurology um, facilities in James's Hospital. And as part of that, we had two other runners this year in the marathon who, who ran with us, Jamie Scott, who has epilepsy but has been seizure-free for a number of years and has taken up running recently. And then Edward Manders, who still has occasional seizures, but Ed uh, uh, has more, more normal set of seizures. He will get one every six weeks or, you know, that sort of thing. So they ran. So we ran as a group and we, one of our nurses, Claire uh, Behan, yeah. ran with us. 
So we had nice, a nice group uh, running in the marathon this year. So next step is more extreme marathons. Are you okay with that? Yeah, don't know about that. It sounds I think like the Colorado 100 is run every year. It's a 100-mile run across the Colorado mountains. You up for that? No. <laughs> <laughs> I got a feeling you might need to get a new training partner soon, Katie. But, uh, college. Listen, best of luck with college. Best of luck with it all. And um, thanks Thank so much you. for coming into us. Really Thank appreciate you so your much time. for Thank having you too, me. Thank you. So he's almost like having a second captain in the team. Second captain, first captain, whatever. Richie Sadler's here. Richie, how are you? How are you, lads? How are you, lads? Richie, how are you, lads? How are you doing this week? I'm marvellous. Look at the joy on my face. Look how happy I was. What the fuck happened? <laughs> no, really. You know, what happened? When John was young, everyone in the city knew about it, but no one had seen him. It is not war and death and famine. It's not that at all. It's the opposite of that. It's persuaded of the world outside of that. That's why sport's important. Okay, hope you all enjoyed that. Colin, Katie and the rest of the team also run to raise awareness for the condition and to raise money for the neurology department and St. James's Hospital. So go to supportstjames.ie or donate to epilepsy.ie for more information on the condition. And what really makes Katie Cook's story all the more remarkable is the fact that in the space of time she was in this building, she suffered two seizures alone and she just gets up and gets on with things. First one was, was downstairs when she came in, Ken. Yeah, I was just downstairs. Um when uh, Colin and Katie arrived, so I was, we were just sitting around the table, just uh, chatting as we were waiting. You know, we were getting some stuff ready upstairs to do the interview, and uh, just in mid, literally in mid sentence, um, Katie just quite suddenly fell sideways off the chair. Um, it's on the ground, probably thirty seconds or so, um, having a seizure. Colin was kind of explaining, "Look, this is what happens." You know, I guess the, yeah, I mean, when when she came to, then she obviously knew what had happened I mm. mean um, and uh, yeah I mean it's makes a joke about it and cracks on absolutely yeah um, you know I was just when I, initially when it happened I was worried that she might hurt herself falling to the ground mm. but uh, yeah that's an occupational hazard it seems yeah and same thing in the space of we're talking 35 minutes uh, just immediately after the interview with us she was we were chatting to Colin about an event that he's he's um, organising in Trinity and then we just saw her sliding off the chair to her right same sort of thing just kind of became her hands and fingers fingers became quite rigid but just there's no panic from Colin you just you mm. can understand what it what it means to people who are have somebody who has epilepsy severe epilepsy in their life that it's just part of their life and they get on with it he was completely calm and she, just as she kind of started to slide off the chair we just picked her back up and then Maybe 90 seconds later, she was awake and joking. And it was funny, actually, in the documentary that I mentioned on, on Radio 1, she obviously has tons of friends. She seems like a really popular girl, but her friends were being interviewed and they were saying that actually passersby think they're being really inconsiderate because Katie will, you know, have a seizure, be on the ground, and they're so used to it, they'll just be on their phones <laughs> beside her waiting for it to pass, you know? It's like just a common thing. But she's, yeah, she's, she's a really uh, great girl and it's amazing that she doesn't let something like that take over her life, good on her. Um, and... I think that's a good place to round out the show. That's all. That's about all the time we got for everyone. Tweet us at Second Captains. Email editor at secondcaptains.com. Richie's back on Thursday. Owen back on Monday. Thanks, Murph. Thank you, Mark. Thanks, Thank Ken. Ken. Thanks, Mark. Thanks, Thanks for listening, everyone. I'm going to round this out with a hug. Give me a hug, Ken. Come on. Come on. Oh, this oh, is beautiful. Okay. Give me one. That's oh. actually gorgeous. Ken, uh, come good, on, Ken. Ken. Not reciprocated. Relax. relax your body. Okay. See you, guys. What is that? That's the second time it's gone off. They 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.